0: You can't really but daydream what will happen when a child grows up, and it 's kind of exciting in so many ways, but I, I think about that when I think about our fellowship, and I 'm just excited to, to just wonder what will happen, what will look like in years to come. It's kind of an exciting thought. We are picking it up, chapter four verse. 12, so go ahead and turn there if you would, please. We read this.
1: Now when Jesus had heard
0: that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Yeshayahu, Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, the shadow of death. Light has dawned oh, and from that time. Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen, which is very kind, by the way, because in Scripture, just, so you know, we don't read Peter ever catches anything without God's help. Well, anyways, maybe he was a very thin fisherman. Then he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them Jesus. And so they, they went, it says, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease from among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, those who were demon possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, And beyond the Jordan. And of course, this becomes the setting for what we may know of as the Sermon on the Mount. So go ahead and pray with me, if you would, please, as we begin. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to take this time, for being able to enjoy you. Lord, for being able to turn our hearts to you and expect you to speak today. So, God, I do pray that. I pray, Lord, that no matter where we came in today, that we would encounter you in a perfect, glorious, intimate, profound way. So, God, you know what hurdles that need to be crossed here. You know what boundaries need to be transgressed by you that we would try to lock you out of, but you should have right into You know what failures and fears and weaknesses, what defeats stand in the faces of of the people here. And you know how to speak fluent us individually. And God, because you're the perfect, ultimate, almighty multitasker, do exactly that for every one of us here today. Profoundly perfectly speak to each of us. May we have even more fun than the kids. May we have so much fun in your word today. Lord, open our hearts. Cause us to laugh and to feel your pain, to, be, to, to experience your excitement, your hope today. And color in the black and white in such a way, Lord, that we find ourselves in this scene, captivated in your word responding appropriately to your love. If there be any who have yet to say yes to your gift of eternal life today, may today be the day they say yes to you. For those, Lord, that are weak, strengthen. For those that are discouraged, encourage. For those that feel defeated, give them hope today. And I pray you would redeem every second. So, Lord, immerse me. Come upon me that you would be seen that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do now. That every one of us could walk out of here saying, wow, what an amazing God and what a beautiful way that he's made himself clear in his word. Lord, may we today in your house as we seek you in prayer now, open our hearts to your word, even as we open your word. Open our hearts to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. This is never about a person being an expert. It's about God's Word being the authority. In Matthew chapter 4, God steps into the world to birth a revolution. He is now an adult. He's in his early 30s. Roughly 30 is what we read in Scripture. But Jesus, different from every one of us, has the choices we don't. And yet, He chooses an unattractive, unimpressive form from a seemingly obscure family in a seemingly unwatched, sleepy town. And then He chooses the unfamous the uneducated, the untrained, seemingly unsought, unnoticed, unexalted, ordinary locals from that same town. And it really, in essence, fills the weather of my own heart with the humid question of why that? Why a town like Capernaum? Why people like... Peter, James, John, and Andrew that we have here. Prayerfully, the whole walk through the remainder of this chapter will give us that. He's not grabbing or filling out ads for gifted orators, theologians, celebrities, even profile religious personalities. I would think that those type of people would be queuing up in order, but yet rather he chooses men with, well, filthy... An intimidated stench, society's bottom dwellers with calloused hands, attentive eyes, strong backs, hardly common candidates for those you would assume were going to be changing the world. And yet I think this is exactly perfect. In verse 12, it says, "Jesus, when he had heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. And it tells us in verse 13 that he left Nazareth to do so. Which tells us that at least up to this point, Jesus still, whether you know it or not, was kind of living at home. One man or another. I mean, living somewhere on the property, which would be tradition, by the way, with Mary, his wife. Mary, I'm I'm sorry, Mary, his mother. Thank you. Jesus wasn't married. Let's not start that rumor again. And as Jesus is living on the property with Mary, his mother. He is going to be leaving now, though he's already started his public ministry. That's very different from what we're going to see in a lot of the movies, where Jesus sort of departs, starts his public ministry, and never really kind of sees mom until she catches up with him. It seems he starts the thing here and now, but at this point it's time for him to go full on. And he does so and moves his headquarters from home in Nazareth now to Capernaum. Capernaum's a sleepy little fishing town. You can show the map if you would, Daniel. It's roughly about 1,500 people. The synagogue will show that it allows for much more than that ultimately. We have a, today you can, when we go to Israel, you can visit a second century synagogue built on the original foundation. It was established in the Hasmonean dynasty. That's roughly the 160s B.C., which means it's almost 200 years old by the time Jesus sets up shop there. But what's kind of interesting is from 1 Kings 9, and it's a really kind of fundamental part of this. Please hear me in this. David's son, King David, his son's name is Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple. Well, Solomon needs resources, and some of the resources he needs are are, are going to be wood. Now, perhaps you think that wood is plentiful, but it really isn't in the Middle East. And so he goes north to the area of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon still exists to this day. And in, in Tyre, the king at the time, his name is Hiram, happens to have been a good old friend of David, his father. And with that, they kind of work out a deal. And in this deal, the guy gives him the cedar and perhaps you've heard the sort of expression the cedars of lebanon i mean there are certain places in california the redwood forest there are these places where these trees are just so large that you can literally carve through them in there with the, you can drive uh, vehicles through the actual trunk of the tree that's how large they are and that's kind of the idea of what you get with the cedars of Lebanon and so with that in mind it's a beautiful it's very aromatic wood it's definitely beautiful dark and rich and and so Hiram gives him gold but he also gives him cedar and he gives him cypress trees for them to be able to, to build not only the temple but also Solomon's own house now, with that in mind, Solomon is very, very thankful. Twenty years down the line, he's built now the temple and he's built his own house. And he wants to sort of pay him back. And in 1 Kings 9, what we read is that Solomon gives him 20 cities in the area of Galilee. That's the area we're talking about here. Hiram comes down from Tyre and he takes a look at the cities. And he says, Kabul. Some of you are familiar with the term Kabul. It's the capital of Afghanistan. It's the same kind of idea. Kabul means sterile, barren, worthless. Imagine a king comes down, takes a look at the gift. Hey, here's my gift. Maybe you've, you've had one of those moments where someone's given you a gift and you have to fake that you love it, but you know the moment you're done, you're like... Is there a white elephant gift exchange? Is there? Can I eBay this without them seeing? I mean, that kind of thing. Well, they get the idea. He looks. How do you do that with twenty cities? And he looks at the cities and he says, "These are worthless. What is this? Why don't you give me this?" See, back in the book of Joshua. When Israel took the land, the land had to be allotted And the land of the north, the area of Galilee, which has a lovely sea, by the way, uh, is, is an area that was granted then to this to the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. And that's what we see in our text. They're very, very far north. And if we could take a look at this, this may actually help a little bit. The idea is kind of simple. We are. Looking at the far north, and the farther north you go, the more likely you are to find enemy territory. And that becomes the problem. The area just north of them is actually occupied by the tribe of Dan. I'm going to do this just to make it a little easier. Can you see this, everyone? Okay, this sea has four names. But this whole area, if you draw it like a big circle, is the area of Galil. You can see right there Galilee. Galil means circle, and that's kind of the idea. Just north of it was a tribe of Dan. They're kind of up here. But basically, they're the first tribes to fall by Tiglath-Pileser, by, by the way, uh, in the Assyrian army. Because they were closest to the enemy and they were farthest from, to be honest, from a place of great devotion to God. But when the, when the land had been given to them, this is a beautiful area. This sea has the names of Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Kinneret, or the Sea of Gennesaret. It's the same place. So why give it a whole bunch of different names? Well, each one has an inference, and it's important to recognize. This is the stuff I love, by the way, when we're reading Scripture, because I realize the word Hineret is Hebrew. The word Geneseret is actually Greek, and they mean the same thing. They mean harp. And the reason is, if you look at the shape of this, ultimately it looks like a harp, like a Hebrew harp. And understand, if you know anything about instruments, the harp is a very intimate instrument. Now, we're told, by the way, to praise the Lord with the clashing of cymbals and the blowing of horns. Obviously, that's loud. But we're also told to praise the Lord with the harp. And I get that. That there are times where it is going to be big and loud and everyone's jumping up and high-fiving each other and that kind of thing. And then there are other times where it actually is going to be quiet and it is going to be sort of mellow. Sorry, I'm just trying to clean up that sound a little bit for your sake. There you go. So hear me on this. There are those times where what you've got is you've got this harp, and it's really intimate. Now, if you've ever been to Israel with us, you know that the Sea of of, of Gennesaret or the Sea of Canaan is extremely peaceful. As a matter of fact, so much so that it's the one place where I actually get up every day before the sun rises by choice, and it gets so quiet you can actually hear the wind underneath a mud duck as it flies by. It's beautiful. And it is very intimate. You see the red sky as the sun rises over the eastern hills. But it is also the Sea of Tiberias. And the reason it's the Sea of Tiberius is it's the only major city. And it's actually right there. And it's the Sea of Tiberius because it is the one Roman city. And that is important because what happens ultimately is that the Gentiles had taken the, the area over. And as they would taken the area over, what happens is that it's really frowned upon by the general very traditional Jew because they look at it and they think, well, this is just a bunch of Gentiles living there now. And Tiberias was a city actually built on a a graveyard. And because it was actually built on a graveyard, no good right Jewish guy would ever go there. As a matter of fact, it was condemned by the Sanhedrin for you to be a Jew and actually go to Tiberias. So when it's actually mentioned as the Sea of Tiberias, you kind of get the idea, the inference there is, it's kind of a place that people, good Jews don't go to. It's called the Sea of Galilee because it's the, sea, the area that had been promised, and that's what we see in our text. So, why this area? Why this, of all places? Why not Jerusalem? Because that's sort of the big city. That's the London of Israel. Why go to a place like this, where there's only just a thousand and a half people living there, and it's kind of rejected, and it's also full of Gentiles and very few Jews, and the Jews that were there, by the way, the the language they spoke was considered, considered so nasty, so slaughtered that they wouldn't allow, in the 364 different synagogues in Jerusalem, you could never do a benediction if you were from Galilee. Because the manner in which you spoke, it seemed irreverent for you to be able to speak the Bible or a blessing in that language. Now, perhaps that could be the case for you. You hear this and you think, well, look who's speaking, American. I get that. But please understand that this is the area that Jesus chooses. So follow me on this for a second and go to that other slide if you would. Let me tell you a couple of things you might not know about the area other than the fact that it was rejected by the king of Tyre. First of all, the city is called Kafir Nahum. Can you say Kafir? Nahum. Yeah, hey, that wasn't bad. Try it again. Kafir Nahum. (laughs) Nice, Nice. Kafir means village, not city, not mega city. It means village. Nahum, like the prophet, Nahum, means comfort. Strangely enough, it means the city of comfort, or the village, if you will, of comfort. But what's interesting is is that this particular area here also, and there's our sort of our circle, is actually the area where three different trade routes will coalesce. What you'll find, by the way, is this area called the Via de Maris. The Via de Maris, and and do we have one more slide of this, Daniel? Um, You'll show that it'll actually go, and then it'll connect all the way up here from Turkey and Tyre and Sidon to Syria all the way down into Egypt. So it basically goes north-south. It's the way of the sea. It's what Via Maris means. It also connects the Silk Road of China, which would be China here. And what it does is it actually travels across Iran and Iraq through India, and then it splinters, and one part goes up through here into Tyre through that area. The other one heads down south into Africa and into Saudi Arabia. The third, for what it's worth, is the King's Highway, which goes from Damascus Syria. that's up here, down into Egypt. So all three of them actually meet here. Now, understand if Jesus just wanted to reach the Jewish people, what would have happened is he could have gone down to Jerusalem and it would have been great. Just the same way that today, if we really wanted to reach just religious people, maybe we could try to start something in Canterbury. If we really wanted to reach the Catholic, perhaps we could just start something in Rome. But Jesus wanted to reach everyone, and the greatest thing about this is this is the one place where everyone's going to say it'd be a great place to be a tax collector, by the way. We'll deal with that in chapter 9. But consider this, that what we're dealing with is that Jesus wants the entire world to know that he's going to save, and with that, this is the perfect place for him to set up. So it goes to this town called the Town of Comfort. And as it goes to this town called the Town of Comfort, all of these people, and this is one of the reasons the Jews don't like it, is because people from all over the world are traveling through. Kind of, to be honest, sounds like London if it were infinitely smaller. And imagine, there isn't a country in the world you couldn't reach if you were actually going to preach Jesus in London, because sooner or later you're bound to run into someone. So it tells us here, by the way, this is in full fulfillment of what Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 9. That's 700 years before Jesus sets foot as a baby. And that's important to note. What separates Jesus from all of the other people that are religious in the world is that Jesus was the one guy that was actually foretold from the beginning of mankind onward that he would show up to the day, by the way, according to Daniel. Everything from the manner in which he would die prophesied 600 years before they invented crucifixion all the way down to uh, the manner in which, where he would live, his manner of death, his manner of burial, his manner of birth, where he would be called out of from there, that he would be called a Nazarene. Every bit of this foretold even in some cases, 2,000 plus years before Jesus would set foot. And I love that about Jesus. And here it tells us, by the way, that Isaiah had prophesied that this is actually where he'd set it up. So here we are looking. Now, we remember when, when Herod actually was told that wise men had shown up looking for Jesus, he asks, where would this Jesus be born? And they told him, Bethlehem, that's where he must be. I wonder if they're still spanning Bethlehem. And while they're still looking there, it tells us, though, that Isaiah made really clear, this is what's going to happen. Though that area got hammered by Tiglath-Pileser and the Syrian, and well, actually, the Syrian army, what will happen is God says, this is still the area where I'm going to rise up this great light for everybody to see and come to salvation. But you need to know this. This is one of the reasons why Jesus could make claim to be someone, to be uniquely the choice versus one of a bunch of choices. And so with that in mind, it tells us this as it's now quoting the book of Isaiah. Look at what it says then in verses 13, 14, 15 and onward. Leaving Nazareth, he came to dwelt at Capernaum, which is by the sea, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. I remind you, those are two tribes of Israel in their allotment, their land allotment, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice by this point, they assume it'd be overrun by Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, the shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, let me actually take you back for a moment. And if you're actually familiar with Scripture, and even if you're not, if you keep your finger there so you don't lose it, close your Bible up and open it in the middle, chances are what you're going to find is the book of Psalms unless you've got some kind of unique way of putting it, usually that's where you find it in the middle. And then from there, go to the right, the next major big book is the book of Isaiah. It's 66 chapters. It's fairly hard to miss. And I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 9 for a moment. Isaiah is writing during the time of Hezekiah, king of, of, of the south. And that's important. That puts this as a time stamp. It's when the northern kingdom is being taken down, as we see. In chapter 9, and I want you to see the context for this because it's so beautiful. God speaks about <coughs> how the area of, uh, of Zebulun and Naphtali had been taken down because of the Syrians, the Syrians. And he says this then in chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who was distressed, as when at first he highly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That should sound familiar. That was in our text. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Because, and that's what the word for means. You have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandals from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire, because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and then his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What he tells us is, though this area had suffered so greatly, I want you to know, actually, the better of it's going to happen. And that is that I will raise up from here a child. And this child will not just be a child, but a son that is given. And we're going to give him a name. We're going to call him Wonderful. We're going to call him Counselor. We're going to call him Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we get this particular release and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, the government being upon his shoulder is actually a, is a wedding metaphor. Because if it were just that he were going to rule, you would have said that the government would be upon his shoulders, both. And the idea of that is that he would bear the burden of the government. Would that make sense? But when a couple gets engaged, well, what's this? When a daughter is born to a house, she's given normally by the community, normally her own family, uh, uh, this braid. And this braid is three different colors. And this braid is it shows the father the responsibility he has for that, first of all, regards to the Lord and the traditions of the Lord, and that, of course, of uh, physical and emotional. And the idea of it is this, that the father and the household is supposed to be stable enough that the daughter feels safe there because she's on loan is the idea. And so they're to be consistent because we thrive best emotionally in a state of stability. They're to provide for you know, physically to make sure she's fed and clothed and housed. And to take care of her in the ways of the Lord. To raise her up in the ways of the Lord. So that ultimately there will be a man that will be bargaining for that girl. And the Father has to say to the standard I have given physically, emotionally, and spiritually. and That's the same way of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. To the level on which I have established, I expect you to carry that on. Today, what we have in our culture is, perhaps you're familiar with it, the big pump and the bride comes in with the beautiful train and someone's carrying it. Kids are throwing flowers. They're not even sure why they do that yet. And then, and you get this, and there's a point where the pastor says, or the minister, and who gives this bride away? And usually the father, while he's trying not to sob, says, her mother and I do. Well, why in the world do they do that? Because ultimately, the idea of that traditionally was that they're saying, we do acknowledge that the man we're giving our daughter to will carry that on. Well, that particular cord is called the cord of government. And when the groom comes for his bride after their engagement, the father takes that cord and he lays it upon his shoulder, singular. And what he says is, she's yours now. Love her. Invest in her. Care for her. And that's the term that is used here in Isaiah. It's an intimate term. And what he tells us is that the government, the cord will be upon his shoulder. Our Messiah is not coming just to basically make sure you don't go to hell. Jesus isn't a get out of hell free card. He came to be with you and thus chose the most unintimidating form and fashion and look so that you could approach him. If God really came to earth to be with you, why would he make himself unapproachable once he got here? If he was gigantic and great looking or whatever, had that beautiful surfer, deep blue eyes and the whole thing. I mean, some people would find it hard to approach him. But the idea that if he actually kind of looked like every, if you'll pardon me for saying, every other guy with a big beard and mustache and, a, and sort of, you know, a white covering over his head, he would be a lot easier to approach, even by his enemies. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to be with us and thus made himself so. So please understand, when Isaiah speaks to us, he says, listen, there is a day where great light is going to shine, but this is what you should expect. Expect him to come as a baby. Expect him to come as a son. Expect him to come as a redeemer a counselor, a friend, but expect him to come as a groom, as a lover. And that's what Isaiah says. So when we see Jesus set up, his, 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 establish his headquarters there in Capernaum, it kind of makes sense. Because to be honest, we need to find a place where the darkness is obvious. And I love that Jesus found a place, by the way, where both tax collector and prostitute both thrived. So we could go into a community, and once it starts to change, everyone goes, clearly something's going on here. That's what Jesus is doing. So we kind of get that first part. Now go back to our text now as we continue to move forward. Jesus then picks up the slack as John had been put into prison. And John, by the way, always seems to forerun things. John emerges and then Jesus emerges. John is in prison. Jesus starts his public ministry. John is executed. Jesus starts setting his eyes towards the cross. John kind of goes before him in all of these sort of major stages of his ministry. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Now repent. And ultimately what's going to happen is at this point, Jesus now is going to start calling some guys. And that's what we get in the rest of our text. But I want you to realize the guys haven't read the rest of this chapter. It isn't like Samuel woke up this morning or, you know, Zach woke up this morning, you know, or, you know, Jeffrey woke up this morning or Dominic woke up this morning and said, wait, oh, no, look at this. I'm going to be called today. It was a normal day of work. And chances are this was family after family. Grandpa, -grandpa, great-grandpa, great-great-grandpa fished on this same lake. Slick lake is a beautiful lake, not only shape, but it's basically six miles wide and 11 miles, you know, long. But it's almost in its deeper than one can imagine for its shape. The major fish that grows in the area to this day is that of tilapia. Some of you are familiar with tilapia, but tilapia is actually, like many white fish, it's actually unique in some of its personality and it's got quite a personality. It's extremely skittish. It's a very, frighty, uh, very frightful fish. As a matter of fact, So much so that when the fish are actually very, very small, they hide in mom's mouth. I don't know if, you know, aren't you thankful you're not a fish? And sooner or later, mom gets really tired. The kids get a little bit big and gums are starting to hurt. So what does she do? So mom actually goes and she finds something shiny. And she tries to get it in her mouth. Because if she gets it, one thing that these fish are afraid of is light. That's why, first of all, these fishermen are always fishing at night. Because... They're not afraid of the light then. But as a result of that, if you found something shiny and then you can get it to reflect, kids won't be running into your mouth anymore. I find that interesting because there's actually a point where Peter has to go fish to get temple tax and he pulls a coin out of a fish's mouth. And we think, that's the strangest thing I ever heard, but not for a fisherman in Israel. I mean, anything shiny would be, I mean, you'd just be happy you didn't pull out a big piece of metal. It was actually something of value. And God built the fish for that, if for no other reason, just for that moment with Peter. So get this, you're fishing, you fished all night. Now we get a lot more of this information, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. And it's important to note this, that it isn't like Jesus used some kind of crazy Jedi mind trick on these guys. It isn't like they were all fishing and Jesus went up to him and he goes... You must follow me. And they're like, we must follow him. There's none of that going on here. Jesus actually has a history with these guys. See, understand that when Jesus began to teach, again, he sets up things in Capernaum. In Capernaum is where these guys go in because that is where the market is to actually take in your fish. It's also where you get taxed for it as well. So with that, understand Jesus has already been teaching, but there's more than that. Because in the Gospel of John, when Jesus begins his ministry, when John the Baptist says, look, there's the Lamb of God who you know who takes away the sin of the world, you need to follow him. One of the guys who follows him is a guy named Andrew. As a matter of fact, interesting, we're going to see him as one of the four here. Andrew, by the way, is mentioned more times as the brother of Simon Peter than it is just Andrew. And I think that's interesting. With some of you, maybe that's the way you kind of feel about yourself. You kind of know yourself as the sidekick. You know, it's sort of like, you know, who would recognize Robin without Batman? It's kind of the idea. And the reason I say that is God recruited such a guy. But what's interesting is this guy was a disciple of John the Baptist until Jesus was pointed out by John and ultimately he follows him. And then we read that he goes and he gets his brother, Simon Peter. Simon is all his name. Is. He, wasn't born, he wasn't born with the name Simon Peter. Simon means, in essence, he's heard or shifting, unstable is kind of the idea. And as he comes walking up, Jesus looks and he goes, Oh, Simon. And I think if I were Simon, what did my brother tell you? But think about the relationship that Andrew must have had with Simon to be able to say, I found the Messiah. And Simon Peter actually says, well, then let's go. I mean, don't you think if they didn't have a decent relationship, that he would have been like, what is wrong with you? What are you, some kind of nut? What's wrong with you? Get out of here. But no, what we find is that Simon Peter goes. And Jesus says, you're Simon, but I'm going to call you Rocky, yo. And that's what Petras means, the rock. You, know, you thought that Dwayne Johnson was the rock? No way. But for a guy that was sort of captain, if you will, Admiral Impetuous, what a fantastic guy to call. But I mean, so think about when you think in your mind, who's the first guy that if you guys were going to be near a cliff, he wouldn't even look, he'd just jump off. Who's that guy for you? Who's the first one that you know that you have to actually, you know that you have to look for traffic for them when they get near the street? Who is that guy for you? Who comes to your head, the one that you know that if they open their mouth, there's an uh-oh in your spirit, and they haven't said anything yet, but they, they're just taking that breath in, you're like, oh no. For me, that's usually a drummer, not, not the guy we have now. Praise God for that. But it's like traditionally drummers are the guys that they say something everybody's thinking, but they're too smart to say. And then they're just like, then you're like, oh no, well that's Peter, that's Simon. So when you take a look at Mr. Unstable, Admiral Impetuous, and Jesus says, I'm going to make you solid. How profound that would be to be told that. Maybe that's you today. But they don't know this. James and John, and we'll talk about them in a moment. They're just fishing. And it's morning, and they've got nothing. Jesus ultimately will go out and begin to teach. But here, Matthew doesn't give us any of that information. What he tells us is what it means to be called. Hear me in this. Jesus has now set up shop, and he set up shop in a place that makes sense if you want to reach the world, but not just the Jewish people. And we read this, verse 18, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. And they were casting their net in the sea, which tells us that they weren't done yet. They were either casting their net into the sea for one of two reasons. One to try to catch fish or the other to wash the nets. And you're probably aware of this, but fishermen are very can be very superstitious people. The town we came from in California was a fishing town. And it's unbelievable. If you suggested something, it'll probably happen. You're like, you know what you really need to do? You need to have three empty Dr. Pepper cans sitting on top of your little mini fridge and you go out fishing, you'll be amazed at what that does. People are like, oh, that's crazy. And then they'll do it. Try casting it, standing on one leg. We had a little pier uh, in our area. And in that little pier, you learn a lot of things about fishermen. One thing you learn is bait smells bad. mean, bait's dead fish. The only meat that actually degrades exponentially as it begins to rot. I had a husky for a while. Beautiful, beautiful dog. Loved to run. And she, um, one day, decided she wanted to bring me a gift. She ran all the way to the pier, came back, and brought a bucket of ghost shrimp. Do you know what ghost shrimp are? They're basically shrimp that are looking that look transparent. But let me tell you what. That smell. I could smell it down the block. And they were outside in our yard. And She was so happy about it. She was just so happy. Look at the gift I gave you. This big, nasty, stinky thing isn't awesome. But I remember, man, you walk near there, You can tell when the fishermen were there because of their language, and of course because of the smell. And they'd be, they'd be there all night. But you could all say, you know what? What you need to do is, what the moment the sudden the moon comes out, howl. And I would try this stuff on people because I'm just rotten like that. People like. Arr! Like I just, Oh, you talked to that guy, didn't you? And here's the point of it. So these guys, whether they're washing their, their nets or whether they're actually, ca- one way or another, they're casting them. And when we read, because they're fishermen, this is what they do. This is what they do. Never underestimate the fact that if you're faithful with God calls you to, even if it's the simplest thing, God may blindside you at a moment of the ordinary to hijack your ordinary with the extraordinary. And you may very well do that even today. You could be washing a dish in a, in a restaurant. You could be selling a guitar string. You could be sitting in a meeting where everybody's wearing ties. You could be fumbling through papers, trying to make sure they're in the right order. You could be studying for an exam. You could be just walking down the street, and God says, now is your moment. And the strange thing is, for you, it'll be completely blindsided, and you won't even see it coming, but God's been preparing for it before you were even born. He's known your name. He knows where you're going to be. See, for you, you don't see him coming, but he's been waiting for you to get to that one spot where he's going to do this. And I wonder how many people today in this room today, that's what God's going to do here. But I want to warn you, Jesus' call is simple. Well, follow me on this. These guys are fishing, or they're casting their nets, and Jesus turns to them, and notice what he says to them. His challenge to them, by the way, is not really difficult to understand. He says, listen, follow me and I'll make you. Listen, follow me and I'll make you. Do you realize which part of that you have a choice in? The following part. That's the part we miss. And can I just say, that's really the saddest part of this to me. Because our culture right now is we're trying to be, we're trying to be really busy trying to make Christians like superheroes. We're like trying to make everyone sort of like Bible Captain Americas. You know, we're like trying to figure out how to inject into their system like spiritual steroids. And so, on some sides, we have these guys, and you ever see this? It's like you, you know, you start praying with them, and the moment like they want they want to like start getting spiritual, it like their voice changes, you know, and they get really loud, and it's like they're like. I could would you pray with me, sure? Let's pray in then news. Like I don't just pray. And on, you're oh, like, what happened to the guy? I started praying with, right? And like, they're shaking and they're clenching and they're going like this and they're going room, vroom. And they're like, what in the world is this? And I'm like, why? And I'm freaking out because I'm trying to be like Pastor Poker Face. I'm like, yes, Lord, yes. What? And and we do that line item in Vietnam where you don't want to yes, Lord, that because I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to yes that. But the Lord and oh. And I'm not really sure what that And maybe that does something somewhere. I, I don't know. I don't see it in Scripture. But just to say, and, and I see all of this happening where there's like, come on, I want to give us a bow and I'm just got to, and, and what happens with all of that, you okay? And what happens is it's like somehow and it's like, but then what would it's like? We need to beef you guys up to work for God. Whew, aren't you glad I'm doing this? and You can follow me on this, and we get this idea. It's like God's like, if you just fix yourself up, I'll hire you. And you know what happens? Most of us go, man, that is too much work for what? So I mean, I'm already not going to hell. What else do I need? But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't recruit theologians here. He didn't go and find the religious celebrities. He looked for a guy that didn't expect Jesus to say, "Why don't you just come with me?" And here's the thing: look at Jesus just said, "Look at here's your part. Will you follow me?" Don't just sit there and say, "I met him once. It was really cool, and he was like nice. He had a beard." Yeah, and really he look more Jewish than I thought. I don't know, and you know, or whatever. He was shorter. He didn't. I didn't see the gold plate or what. I mean, all that. I mean, like, that was it. That's all you can tell me. It's like, Jesus is like, look, don't just think about me. Don't just think warm thoughts about me. Don't just sort of draw something so that it's kind of like I'm like a cat poster. In the end of it all, can you follow me? And you're like, where? But Jesus is like, but if I told you, then you won't follow me. And you know how that is. I have kids. So, like, where are we going? Follow me. Okay, well, where are we going? We're gonna go around the corner. Vroom, off they go around the corner. I'm like, ah. Uh, we stop following the moment we have you know what I'm talking about. People do that you're like, Lord, I need more information. Imagine if God said, you know, at the turn of the year, you know, it's it's December thirty first. Two thousand fifteen. And God's like, Sam, here's all the things that, that I have planned for you next year. You know what that means? Then the Lord will be like, I'll see you December thirty-first next year. Because that's when we'd show up again, right? But when he tells Abraham, Follow me, where? You'll see when you get there. What's the next step? Well, I'm only gonna give you God doesn't even do a two step with you, He does one. Here's the one step, and then I'll tell you the next one step. And the, the weird thing is he makes it simple. Because then we actually can't say, "Oh, it's too difficult for me to figure out." I don't have my Christian decoder ring. I'm just kind of spinning. Maybe if I could, God isn't really making it that difficult. He's just follow me. Where? Well, the one thing you need to memorize is the back of my head. Because if you keep your eye on that, you'll go in the right place. And then what you'll find is Jesus will back up, put his arm around you, and walk with you and all of this. And I love that about him. He's like, if you follow me, I'll make you. That's it. It's like, look, you know, and that may mean that I may lead you to a Bible college. That may mean I may lead you into a school of ministry. That may mean that I may lead you into something. But you need to follow me. Exactly. You need to follow me, and I'll do the work. Because the issue is not you getting ready for, to work for me. It's that you, I, I died to be with you, and I want to have a relationship with you. So as we walk, you're going to notice the change. And that's what you're missing. So we come to church on a day like this, and we sit here and we listen to some crazy American guy rant for a while, and in the end of it all, we get this idea, we listen, and we go, okay, well, okay, I get it. Jesus wants me to follow him. Nice in theory, and I'll kind of sit. And, and, but what does that really mean? Because what happens is if we really make that choice, friends, if we really make that choice, what you may find is that you're going to actually become a very different person than you think you'll become. And I become more like Jesus. So I'm going to open up his word, not so that I can out-argue somebody or fill my spiritual bandolero full of scriptures. And, oh, I know why you're wrong with your doctor. You know, Like that. Instead, it's like, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to open up his book because I want to know him better. And when I pray, I'm going to do more than just talk at God. And I know what it's like when someone says something and they're like, Hey, here's my idea. And you're going to say, Well, here's my idea. But they're not listening because they were talking at you instead of talking with you. And so your information is unimportant. And I do that with God. If I'm not careful, I'm like, God, here's my great plan. Wouldn't it be great if you blessed it? And God's like, I've got a better plan. And I'm like, la, 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 my plan's better. I'm like not listening. He's like, but if I'm going to follow him, I've got to listen. And Jesus is looking, and what he sees are guys that are unintimidated by filth. They're like unscared of stink, with strong calloused hands, and strong legs and back, and attentive eyes, that really aren't intimidated by people that other people were too good to hang around. And they're perfect Because he looks and he just says, can I just make it simple? Here, listen, 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 listen. God is not looking to create the haughty, heady. He's looking to find the wholehearted. And the wholehearted are just those that are willing to follow him, and they don't have to understand. God, I don't get it, but I trust you. Everything's comfortable, everything's solid, and the Lord says, nope, we're going to move you out of the country. And we go, okay. If it's really you, we're going to do that. As long as it's you, and I want to memorize that face, and I want to memorize your walk, and I, because I don't want to be, I don't want it to be like, which one are you again in the crowd? I want to be close enough so that I know where you are at. So no matter where you go, I want to follow you. And they're going to follow Jesus to the prostitute, and to the leper, and to the dead people, and to people you would never go near. But then they won't be prostitutes or lepers or dead people anymore. So by the time you're done, it's like, bring up the evidence. And I love the fact that this is the way it works. Follow me. and We're almost done now. So would you just follow me and I'll make you. In this case, they were fishers of men. And I do love this. Don't miss this. This is the way fishermen worked in those days. And to this day, (coughs) when you're fishing for things like tilapia, it makes sense. (coughs) Excuse me. Because they're afraid of the sunlight... This, it's a simple thing. You throw your net as low as you can. Get it to the bottom. Pull it all in, and sort through it later. Wouldn't that make sense? Don't skim the surface. We're not fly fishing here. Get the net as low as you can. Drop it to the bottom and pull it in. Can you do that? Peter, listen. Well, first... Andrew, Peter, listen, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. You already know what to do. Throw the net as low as possible. Throw it to the bottom. Pull it in. Let me sort through it later. Throw your net to the bottom. Pull it up. Let me sort through it. In Luke chapter 5, verse 7, 5, verse 10 as well, it tells us that these two guys, Andrew and Peter, the brothers, we're partners with James and John and probably Dad Zebedee. Verse 20, it says, so by the way, notice by the way in verse 20, it says immediately they left their nets and followed them. One of the things you're going to wind up leaving behind, by the way, are your nets. Verse 21, it says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a boat with Zebedee their father. Zebedee means, by the way, my gift is God. Kind of a cool name. We also read that they're called Bonerges. Bonerges means sons of thunder, which to me sounds like someone from like WWF. We're like, we're the sons of thunder. But if dad is Zebedee, there's some that might argue maybe mom was thunder if they're the sons of thunder. And I kind of get that when you look a little bit at scripture, because it's mom who says to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to do what I tell you. Jesus is like, uh, what's that? I want my boys to be at your right and your left hand when you establish your kingdom. Jesus doesn't even talk to mom. She turns right to the boys and says, can you really do this? Can you really drink of this cup I'm going to drink, be baptized of the baptism I'm going to be? And they're like, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, we can do that. And then all the other disciples are angry. And I wonder if they're angry because they didn't think of it. Or they're angry because these guys were positioning. Everybody's trying to figure out who's greatest. But get this. It's Jesus, by the way, who will hang in between two thieves. We know that. One at the right hand, one at the left hand when he establishes his kingdom. And aren't you thankful sometimes God says no when you pray? You're like, oh, come on, I need to be in your kingdom. I and when you, when you were establishing this, make sure that one boy's there and one boy's there. Jesus is like, you really don't want that? Sons of thunder. These are the guys, by the way, that will read that when they're passing through Samaria, James and John will say, do you want us to call fire down on these guys? Because they wouldn't let them through. It's kind of a turf war. Jesus is like, you don't even know what spirit you're of. I came to save people, not fry people. What are you thinking here, boys? And I do love this. Because it tells us that from there we saw two brothers, James and John, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nuts. Notice the first two, by the way, were casting. These two are mending. And this is, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed them. Now, hear me. This is, this is what we have for our four guys, and we'll close this up with our last few verses, because this is where the whole thing, to me, glues together. Like a Chinese puzzle where the one piece holds it all, it's the last verses, to be honest. What you've got is you've got this Mr. Unstable, Mr. K- Admiral Impetuous, and you can decide which one of you in this room might be that. But then there's always the guy that's sort of, the, or the gal that's sort of like the, what's her name? You know, the one that's psychic, that's always the kind of known as. Someone's wife or someone's friend or someone's brother or whatever. And you kind of know how that is. Well, that's Andrew. But what's beautiful is Andrew is Andrew the inviter. Every time you start to see this guy, Andrew went and he invited his brother. And then Andrew was the guy that when Jesus goes and he says to his boys, hey, we got 5,000 men in their families. Who do we feed? It was Andrew that said, I found a boy with, a, with his lunch but how, how, how long is that going to go? How, what can we do with that? And I say, there are guys like that are out there. And here's the great thing. If Andrew made it about Andrew, he wouldn't have done anything. It's like, I'm so tired of being in Peter's shadow, Simon's shadow. But instead, he became an inviter. When the Greeks come because they want to see Jesus, they go to Philip, who's the problem solver. And Philip turns, and you know what he is? He goes to Andrew. He says, Andrew, this is your job. This is your strength. And I love that that's what we see with such a guy. John, what we'll find is John becomes the guy that he says is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you think that that's him bragging, I think you're kind of missing what love is. Because love is total selflessness for the other person's benefit. I get that John's saying, I'm the guy that Jesus had to be totally selfless with to invest in me. That's what I get. Interesting, his brother James Acts 12 tells us he is the first of the disciples to die, killed by Herod. John, on the other hand, will be the last of the disciples to die. So those brothers are kind of bookends for what that's worth. But don't miss this. This is what we have. It was an ordinary day. You were fishing, you were selling electronics, you were flipping burgers, you were making smoothies, you were filing papers, you were doing what you do. And Jesus says, you want to come and follow me now? I'll take care of the rest. If you follow me, I'll make you, I'll make you, I'll make you. Just follow me. And they did. And you know what they left? They left their nets. That's their familiar. They left their boat. Well, that's their security. They left Zebedee. On oh, that's, if you will, their society. They left everything that will make someone look at you and go, Allie, what's wrong with you? I'm saying this because I care. Don't you love it when people do that? They're like rubbing that little alcohol before they give you the jab, right? They're like, first of all, before we start, I want you to know I'm saying this because I care. And if you think, oh, this is going to be an awesome talk. This is either I just want to be friends or what's wrong with you? I think you're going overboard. I think you're going crazy on this Jesus thing you're thinking, could you imagine if people did that to Jesus? Do you know they actually did? In the Gospel of Mark, what we read is Jesus' own people. That's his family go to rescue him because they say he's working himself to death. Imagine sitting down with God in the flesh who came to die for mankind and saying, I'm getting a little concerned because you kind of look like you're kind of obsessed with this thing. You should back off a little bit, mellow out. People, You're kind of losing friends. I mean, imagine where that would go. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. I probably should just mellow out a little bit and let everyone go to hell. You really think that's where he wants to go with this? I don't know. Can you imagine saying, you think this is something. Wait till you see me hang naked on a cross. People are like, you are insane. Or committed. Or should be, if they think that of us. But he looks at these guys and he goes, well, you just follow me, I'll make you. Follow me, I'll make you. Follow me, I'll, I'll make you a a what, a barista for the Lord. Follow me and I'll make you what? a guitar salesman for the Lord. So I don't know, but he's like fishermen. fisherman we get. He's like, look at you throw your net to the bottom, pull it up. Do you get me on that? Well, look at the rest of this. Look at what it says. Jesus went about all Galilee now. He's on tour, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and disease, among the people, and his fame went throughout all Syria. Look at verse 24. And they brought to him. Do you see those words? They brought to him. Who was they? The fishermen. They brought to him. Who did they bring to him? Sick people. All sick people. Who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, demon-possessed, epileptic, literally moonstruck, paralytics, or the Greek word, Paralyticos paralytics, we get that, and he healed them. Who better? See, this is the problem with being heady is we overthink and underpray. So you take a person that's diseased and you think, well, who's unafraid of the germs that this could be? Who's somebody that's going to be unintimidated by this kind of thing? Who can actually handle that? A fisherman. Who's actually tormented? Do you know what tormented means? Tormented, basanos, means to touch the bottom. And the idea that this is a person that is an emotional basket case. Did you realize that was in here? They didn't just find a guy and go, oh, you don't have an arm, let's get you to Jesus. But they look at people and they're like, you're a mess. I need to get you to Jesus. Hey, they didn't have to know, hear me, they didn't have to know intimately the problem to know the cure. See, Effective ministry, these guys are going to start a revolution. These guys are going to start a revolution. You know why? Because they're too stupid to know better to try to say, well, I need to know more. Oh, there's got to be some other expert I should get you to first, right? Here, listen. This is what effective ministry listens. This is what it sounds like. This is what it sounds like. You ready? Are you ready for this? It's going to be really difficult. If I could get him to Jesus, he could fix him. That's it. It wasn't like, but wait a minute. Oh, oh, I thought that was something else. I'm not really sure about lupus. You know, Jesus. Yeah. Or, oh, I don't know. I, I know you're kind of depressed, but I didn't realize it's that kind of depression. Oh, I don't know. That's uh, that's we need to get you an expert. And look, at, I'm not saying, look, at, you're sick, don't go to a doctor. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we've now cashed down on the other side of him. We're saying, you know, what we're doing now. We're like saying, you know what? I can't get you to Jesus because I don't know. I'm not an expert in your problem. But these guys weren't experts in anyone's problem but their own. Do you think any of these guys were like, hmm, I don't know. Why don't even need to come and let's diagnose your problem? They said, you know what? Here's my diagnosis. You have a problem. Let's get you to Jesus. Could you imagine if that's what we thought? So they're like, look it. I'll get you to Jesus. Okay, you're tormented. What does that mean? You're a basket case. So listen, if after this, someone says, I need to get you to Jesus. Well, you can figure that out on your own. Listen, but here's the point. It's like, look, at, okay, so what? You, okay, and so I look and they go, who can handle such a crazy person? A fisherman can. Well, well wait a minute. What about somebody demon-possessed? You're going to grab the chains of a demon-possessed guy? You need a guy with calloused hands. A fisherman can. Somebody moonstruck. Somebody that at any given moment can fall over my sister's an epileptic. I have a twin sister, and at any given moment, she straightens up and falls backwards as if she could land on her head. Boy, I tell you, when we lived together, I was like constantly on alert. But you need a person that their eyes are open and a fisherman can. A paralytic? Now, please forgive me for uncleaning this, but the idea, this is a person who can't get up and go to the toilet. They, they stay where they're at and go to the toilet. That's what they do. So which one of you wants to pick up that cot and take them to Jesus? Which one of you goes, I'm glad we're outside. I think Lucas and Jay would love this ministry. A fisherman can. Did Jesus know what he was doing? Absolutely. You see, what they were was not too good for ministry. We think we're not good enough for ministry, but to be honest, truth be told, people are just, they think they're too good for the ministry Jesus wants. And do you realize what they were doing with these people? They were throwing the net at the bottom, and they were pulling up everything. And you know what they found? They found the possessed and the powerless and the paralyzed. They found the basket cases. They found people that were hopeless and helpless and hapless. And they found those people. That's what they found in the net. But they said, it doesn't matter because I'm not the cure. I'm not the fixer. All I need to do is get them to Jesus. And if I can get them to Jesus, He could fix them. And I watch this over and over and over again. Because in the end of it all, the moment I think I'm too good, I'm stupider than I ever thought I would be. Because somehow I think I'm the one that has to do this. But I'm not the doctor. I'm actually just the usher. If I can get you to Jesus, I know I can fix you. Now look at I don't know what you're going through right now. But can I see the way that this chapter ends? is that everybody starts running to him. And we can expect that. I mean, and Daniel, if you show that last um, slide, and we'll close this. By the time we're done, it's like this little area that was sort of seemingly insignificant now becomes headquarters for the biggest ministry that Israel has ever seen. Because one person, one person now, by the way, one person was here and he recruited a bunch of guys that weren't afraid to grab a person that other people wouldn't touch. You weren't afraid to sit out at night with a person that other people are going, oh, no, but don't go near that person. Now, look, at what if they don't want to come to Jesus? Well, here's the good news. You have no shortage of people. So someone's like, I don't want to come to Jesus. Well, then, all right, okay, well, when you do, then come to me. Or I'll find you. But I'll go find someone else. And that Isaiah 9 chapter for unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is, uh, a, son, a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. That particular text it says this. God says, you know, in all of this, in three different times in this text, God will say things are going to get really bad. He goes, but in all of this, my anger is not fully used, but my arm is, my hand is still outstretched. And then more will happen. And God says, but for all of this, my anger is not quenched, but my hand is outstretched still. And for all of this. Anger is not quenched, but my hand is outstretched still. And God's like, how bad does it have to get before you'll take my hand? How miserable, how empty, how rotten, how much do you have to hate yourself before you finally... And it isn't like God says, my hand, it's my hand. God's like, take my hand and let me pull you up. It's the last thing, and we'll pray. and had a good friend named Mike. And Mike was definitely Captain Impetuous. He was like tiny little guy, but looked like a caveman covered in hair. Make Daniel look like a bald guy. And he was just, and he was just, he had this bright ginger hair, and it came off at every part of him, out of his ears. I mean, he was, but he was a crazy wild man. And I remember him, and but he was really given over to drugs. And he was big on acid. He was a big on hallucinogenics. And the idea of it was is this guy would just be, he thought, they said you couldn't overdose on it. He heard about Jim Morrison, so he was just trying to basically eat it like candy. And I remember we were walking. And that was, people told me about things like latent psychosis, like you could go crazy and never come back. That kept me from that, by the way, because I was weird enough without it. And I remember we were walking, Mike and I, and we found ourselves at this big stream. And as we found ourselves at this big stream, I'm like, well, how are we going to get across this? And before I blinked, Mike was in. And he was just jumping in. He was like, we're just going to swim across. Well, the reason it had gotten to be such a big stream was because, to be honest, it had rained a great deal. And if you know anything about when things like that and they flood, undertows happen. And what an undertow is, is it's a current that pulls you down. And Mike, this little guy, gets caught in this undercurrent. And I can see him look at me. And as he's looking at me, I'm like looking to figure out what to do. And I remember grabbing this stick. As I grabbed this stick, I stuck it into the ground. And this, I, I stuck it into the water. And I stuck it into the water. I'm like, Mike, grab this stick. Mike, grab this stick. And Mike, grab this stick. And Mike grabs the stick. And I'm going to pull Mike out. And as I start to pull Mike out, Mike looks up at me. And he looks at the stick. And he goes, Snake. And he lets go. And that was the last I saw of Mike until I had identified the body later. I couldn't recognize that this very thing, with all of the vehement cries of a person who cared, to say, Mike, you don't want to do this. This is help. This is your way out. Just grab a hold and let me pull you out. Take my hand. And all I could see was something that really wasn't it at all. I have to live with that image for the rest of my life, seeing Mike look at me one last time as he went down under the water. And there are moments in quiet that that plays over in my head. And I remember the Lord saying, how many times have I reached my hand out to you and you thought it was the enemy, you thought it was something else? Listen, as we go to prayer, what about you? Are you drowning right now? Are you in that place where you feel overwhelmed and you just feel like everything's just pulling you down? And You're tired of it, man. You're tired of fighting. and You're tired of struggling. And you just feel like it's just one constant battle after another. I'm here to let you know, my God went down into our pit and He died here to pay for all that we are and will do. And He rose again to show that He, that he had paid it in completion. And as he rose from the dead, something that no one else could do. He offers us a way out. I guarantee you at a moment like that, if Mike were sober enough to realize the choice he had, he wouldn't have been angry that there weren't five branches and said, well, I don't like this one. He'd have been happy to take any. But if you're drowning today and you're tired of it and life's on top of you, You're not arguing because you think, you know what, Jesus says he's the only way. How dare he? you just be happy that there was any way at all. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, he's a gentleman and he's inviting you today to just say yes to him. He's not asking you to do anything but this. Follow him. Accept his gift, his payment on the cross for your sins, his resurrection to make you a brand new person. And if you're willing to accept that gift, he's willing to make you brand new right now. But let's say you have said yes to Jesus. It's not a Christian sit. It's not even a Christian stand. It's a Christian walk. And my challenge to you is the same. Follow him. What can I say? Let's follow him together. And let him make us what he wants to make us. Revolutionaries, world changers. Casting our net to the bottom and watching God transform the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know we've gone late today, but I just want to first of all thank you for this text and for all that you wanted to tell us today. And, And I know, Lord, my own heart is heavy because I look and I think... That we can get that information, but without taking your hand, without following you, without accepting your gift. The offer is, in essence, meaningless to us. And I know that there are people out there and they're experts. They've studied, they've got all their facts and figures, and they feel like they've got all their ducks in a row. But They don't know you. And in the end, none of that will matter if they don't know you. And I pray right now, Lord, for every person in here, myself included, that today we would not be people who are gathering information, but not investing in a relationship. And I pray right now, first, if there be anyone in this room who have yet to say yes to you, who yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus, his payment at the cross so that all of our crimes in our heart could be punished, But today, in this room, right now, you want to make us brand new. Revolutionize us. You want to set us free, declare us innocent, wash us clean. And all you're asking for is our permission. I pray right now your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts. I pray for those who have disqualified themselves from ministry because somehow in all of this they felt like they're not equipped enough versus available enough. I pray today that what we would see is what you're looking for, the available. Be open-hearted, and we'll let you make us as you want to make us. So while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree with this prayer, what you're saying is, I agree, amen, let this be my prayer. And the prayer is one of accepting this gift of Jesus, receiving this gift. And here's how the prayer goes. God, I am a sinner. As a human being, I'm a sinner that doesn't surprise you and certainly doesn't surprise me. But I know you died for sinners. You came for sinners. And today here in this room, you've made it clear to me that the price you paid on the cross was for me, specifically for me. So that all of my wrong could be punished. All of my sins properly punished. And as you died on the cross, I was on your mind, and just like Scripture promised, on the third day, you rose again, conquering that death, finishing in, that bill has been paid, and offering me a brand new life, a life where I get to follow you and be made new, with you as my Lord and my reinventor, and I say yes, declaring Jesus you as. My payment, my ransom, my Savior, and my Lord. I'm not asking you to follow me. I just want to follow you now and let you make me something so far beyond what I could imagine that I'll be in constant wonder. So, here I am. I'm yours now. I choose to follow you. Jesus, in your name. And if that's your prayer today, I ask you to give a confident Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, and I pray today that if we are any in here just claiming you as some kind of of get-out-of-hell-free card but not choosing to follow you, ignite our hearts today to follow you, recruit us, Lord, for your ministry. Trusting that if we can get them to you, you'd fix them. Even as you fix us. Ignite us now with that hope, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.